0: our Old Testament lesson, Isaiah 13, verses 6-13. through 13. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed, pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their lights; The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant, and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless." I will make people more rare than fine gold, and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, please now turn with me to our New Testament lesson and sermon text. Matthew 24, verses 26 through 31. We continue this week, we resume that series in the Gospel according to Matthew. We have been in the Olivet Discourse, the discourse from the Mount of Olives that Jesus gives to his disciples that proceeds into chapter 25, and we will be continuing in this through the end of the calendar year. And we come today... To Matthew 24, and we'll pick up at verse 26, even though we briefly considered 26 and 27 in our last sermon here, but I think this helps provide for us some of the important context for what we find then in, where, in the verses we'll focus on, verses 28 to 31. So again, Matthew 24, verses 26 through 31, God's holy and inspired word, Jesus speaking, So, if they say to you, look, he, speaking of Jesus, is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately... After the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, the return of Jesus Christ is at the very heart of the Christian faith. We oftentimes give pride of place to the cross, understandably. The resurrection, understandably. If we're feeling extra generous, we then begin to speak about Christ's ascension to heaven and His enthronement. But like many doctrines, this one gets short shift. We put it to the side so frequently because it is uncomfortable. It's disconcerting. It shouldn't be to the Christian. This is our ultimate hope. The appearance of Jesus. His arrival in glory. To bring comfort to you and to me. Our great, everlasting hope. Don't we want to see Jesus? This doctrine of the return of Jesus is found in the great creeds. It's so important. That the One who ascended in body and in soul, He will one day descend to come back to us in all glory and with authority and to consummate the kingdom that was begun with His ascension and with Pentecost. Our great inheritance our great hope. This is what we arrive to today in Matthew 24. As we do this, I do want to remind you of something that we've been pointing out in Matthew's Gospel here in chapter 24. And that is that we have, as Reformed Christians, along with our ancient church fathers, what we would call a typological or figural reading of the Old Covenant. When I say typological or figural, what I'm saying is that the Old Covenant is filled with symbols. What we often call types and shadows. Figures of greater things that are to come. And we find in Matthew 24 a lot of these types and figures. Why? Why? Because Christ is speaking about the end, the termination of the old covenant. And so, as he speaks about the end of that system of types and figures, he's speaking in a way that has a twofold reference. If you have figures and types, then you have automatically a sort of double fulfillment that occurs. An example that we're probably familiar with in the Old Testament are the types and figures of the sacrificial system, right? Have the Day of Atonement, for example, where sacrifices are offered up for Israel. The high priest takes the blood into the Holy of Holies that one time of the year and brings atonement for Israel. Now, that was a figural or typological action of bringing atonement to God's people. There's a sort of double fulfillment that happens. The type and shadow of the earthly high priest offering up an animal, taking into an earthly holy of holies, and bringing atonement and blessing for the people of God. That's the type. That's the figure. But then those things are pointing to something greater, right? The true high priest, Jesus Christ, offering up himself as the Lamb of God, going into the heavenly Holy of Holies, and bringing everlasting benediction to God's people. There's a typological or figural reading of the Old covenants. Now then, as Jesus is speaking about the end of Israel and the end of the temple in Matthew chapter 24 we must have in mind that he is speaking as an Old Testament prophet and speaking into this figural context because the end of the nation of Israel is a type and shadow of the end of all mankind. The end of all creation. All of the desecration that happens to the temple, the rise of the abomination that desecrates it, is again a type and shadow of a final, climactic, antichrist figure who is not local and regional, like Titus, who came into Jerusalem in 70 A.D., but rather of one who comes at the end of the age, one greater than Hitler, one who brings it to all of creation, a moral rebellion that exceeds anything we've seen before. So, the things Christ has been speaking about can be said in a figural way leading up to 70 A.D. But then that speaks of the whole history of the time between Christ's first and second coming. The thing figured. There's the figure, and there's the ultimate reality, the thing figured. So, why am I mentioning all this? Our timeline as Reformed Christians, and indeed as lowercase c Catholic Christians, is really quite simple. In line with the ancient fathers, we believe that there's tribulation from the time of Christ's first to second coming. There are wars and rumors of wars. There's earthquake and famine. There's persecution against the church. There are false Christs. There's pressure to fall away from Christ. These things become heightened at the very end. With the rise of the final climactic Antichrist figure. And then, after those tribulations, after those things, appears the Son of Man from heaven. He returns after that final climactic ordeal. He returns at the time of cosmic desecration. He returns in cosmic judgment to bring about cosmic renewal. This is where we arrive today in Matthew 24, verses 26, 26 through 31. And I want to begin with first, our first point, cosmic darkness. Cosmic darkness. This image here, and this coming reality of the heavenly lights falling and ceasing to give their light is multifaceted in its meaning. There are a few things that I think are happening here. On one hand, we should recognize that the heavenly lights were given in Genesis to keep time. Genesis 1.14, Let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. The fact that these timekeeping devices are being extinguished tells us that the temporal order is coming to an end. We could also point out that these heavenly lights, the sun, the moon and the stars were given as rulers over the day and over the night. Genesis 1:16: "The greater light would rule the day. The lesser light to rule the night. However, there was a corruption that occurred with mankind. Because mankind, at various points in history, because of sin, because of the fall, they began to associate the heavenly rulers, pardon me, with demons and with angels. And they began to worship the sun, the moon, and the stars. And so, What ended up happening then was that the prophets, when they would speak about the end of all things, would at times then speak about the destruction of the demons with the falling down of the stars in heaven. Because once again, the heavenly lights were then associated, because of sin, they were associated with demonic powers. We might think of like horoscopes and stuff and how those have a pagan. Root to them, and so it is probably being indicated because it's not just talking about the end of the uh, sun, the moon, and the stars here, but at the end of verse twenty nine, the powers of heaven will be shaken. It's probably alluding there to the demise of the demonic horde that has re- that has reigned over mankind, over fallen mankind. So that seems to be going on here. As well. Not just the end of the temporal, but the demise of the demonic. We should also point out here as well that there is a sort of reversal and undoing of creation, which makes sense if the temporal is coming to an end. Recall how creation started in Genesis 1. There was darkness over the face of the deep. Creation then progressed by that darkness being infiltrated by light. Let there be light. This reversal then, this decreation, this undoing as the created order comes to an end, is a reversal where light is then extinguished in favor of darkness. A reversal of sorts. We see the same thing at the time of Noah's flood. There were the normal sun, moon, and stars operating until the time of the flood. And then what do you have happen? Forty days and forty nights of intense torrential rain. In other words, deep darkness. You see no sun, you see no moon, you see no stars. A darkness overwhelmed the earth at that typological end of creation at the time of Noah's flood. That's pointing to the end. The end of the cosmic order. A final thing that this cosmic darkness indicates for us is the simple fact of God's wrath. The day of the Lord is the language for it. The arrival of God, according to Isaiah 13, it comes and it is cruel, not unjust, but it is filled with wrath and fierce anger. Isaiah went on, you might recall, from our Old Testament lesson. The stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil. The arrival of deep darkness indicates the arrival of God's wrath. Our first point cosmic darkness. Our second point is yet another reason, you could say, for this great darkness, and that is for the appearance of Jesus Christ, to highlight his glorious appearance. Now, one of my favorite Christmas uh, Christmastime um, traditions is to watch, if you've ever seen it, National Lampoon's Christmas. And you may recall uh, Chevy Chase, Clark... Um, putting lights, thousands upon thousands, all over his house. And then when do you turn on lights for Christmas, you don't do that during the daytime. You wait till it's dark at night. Why? Because you want the radiance, you want the glory, you want it to shine forth. Well, of course, Clark Griswold goes out there at nighttime and brings those plugs together, and nothing works. Over the course of much time and uh, many just funny moments, He finally succeeds in bringing them together and the house radiates like nothing in the entire city that he lives. In fact, there's so much glory from his house that it saps the entire um, power grid and there's a big blackout across the whole city as his house shines forth with glory in all of the darkness, blinding his neighbors, blinding himself in the process. There's something like this going on Less humor, though, of course, with the return of Jesus. The deep darkness prepares the way for his glorious second advent. For his glory to shine forth most brightly. In the midst of that deep darkness, you see with all the more clarity just how beautiful, just how glorious... Just how luminous is your Savior? We might think of the deep darkness that overwhelmed Mount Sinai many moons ago. But even though that mountain was overwhelmed with deep darkness, there was one who came down upon the height of Sinai and then brought fire and lightning and earthquake. Moses and the elders ascended and they saw him enthroned there. One seated, one glorious, in the midst of deep darkness, that one shone. We think as well of how in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision in heaven of one like a son of man entering into heaven, riding on the clouds. What does he receive as he approaches the Ancient of Days in heaven? He receives glory and authority and power. Now Matthew tells us what all that was for. What was the purpose of his ascension? What was the purpose of his enthronement? What was the purpose of Him receiving glory and honor from the ancient of days? That He could ride on those very same clouds. Clouds that serve like a heavenly chariot. Clouds that ride forth back down from heaven to earth that all mankind would see and then behold the authority and the glory that were given to the Son of Man after His ascension to the Father as He comes back to bring forth the consummation of His everlasting kingdom. Note here that the return of the Son of Man, His appearance is with respect to His humanity. This is how glorious this humanity is. This is what he received in his body and in his blood. As he ascended, so he would one day descend. And so he comes now, not in humility, but in glory. This is not the Son of Man who appeared to Abraham at his tent with two angels just sitting down and having a meal that Sarah prepared for them one coming down in humility this is the sun coming down with the cloud of glory that's brought then to creation all of it this is mount sinai becoming universalized this is the earth and heaven shaking Because the Son of Man, the glorious Son of Man, has come for the day of the Lord. And when He appears, we see His body and His blood glorified, radiating, luminous for all to see. Now, how does this work? I have no clue. But what we do know is this, that He rides the clouds as a chariot... And so it's very easy for us to conceive of the idea of Christ on His chariot riding around the world to display for all mankind His glory that encompasses and circles the world as He rides and shows Himself to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation that they might know that He is the Blessed One who comes in the name of the Lord. No matter the time of day, it will be night. No matter where you live, not only will it be dark, but you will see His glory and you will see then Him. Riding upon His chariot as the conquering hero of the elect and then enacting something that you cannot even imagine this day. The most terrifying vengeance that has ever been known to man. Yet just. Yet righteous. And not only enacting the most terrifying vengeance you've seen, but bringing forth the most comforting, loving, and compassionate salvation that you can possibly imagine. Our second point, his appearance. Third, our response We see very clearly here within our text that there is a worldwide response by the tribes of the earth of mourning, of crying out because they come to realize the folly of their ways. He was always the God who revealed Himself by way of creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaim the works of His hands. And not only did mankind reject Him in creation, but the Gospel went out to the four corners and in the end, those very same tribes rejected Him with respect to redemption. Doubly guilty, you could say. And so they weep. And so they mourn. They recognize that He is that Blessed One who comes in the name of the Lord. And they confess their error. They cast themselves down. And they receive the judgments of Christ. The hypocrites also, those who are Christians in name only, will mourn on that day. As they see Him revealed from heaven... They will recognize their folly as well, that they gave him lip service all their lives, and yet they preferred the things of the world. They did not trust in Jesus and true facts. They did not repent of their sins. They never imagined that he was actually so glorious. They fell for the cultural version of Jesus that was made in their own image. They preferred that version of Jesus, and they lived instead for the world and not for his kingdom. And so they mourn. The tribes of the earth mourn. The hypocrites mourn. They refuse to mourn their sins in this world, their sins against God, and to trust in Jesus. And so forevermore they will mourn in everlasting destruction that is one response that will occur at the return of the son of man the second is the response of celebration and of comforts this is not spelled out explicitly here within our text but it is definitely implied recall the plights of god's people that has been building throughout this chapter In chapter 24, verse 9, Jesus tells us that we will be hated by all for His name's sake. That some from the church would fall away and betray others in the church. That false prophets would come and try to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. There is the need to endure to the end, verse uh, verse 13. And then that tribulation, verse 22, is for the sake of the elect, those days are cut short. So we are then envisioned, the people of God are envisioned as being attacked, in need of endurance, being persecuted, being led astray where possible, And so this arrival, this cutting short of those days for the elect by the Son of Man who gathers His elect to Himself is a great act of salvation from those tribulations. A great extension of comfort to those who have been attacked by the world, their own sin, and by the devil. And so, beloved, how do we respond In preparation for that last day. Well, we hear the word of Jesus as he teaches us in in Matthew 24. Listen to his word, hear it. That's how you will endure. Embrace the fullness of his word. Don't pick and choose buffet style, but hear it, receive it, listen to your master, be his learner, his disciple. Know what He's speaking and await then His salvation that He will bring to you. As we do this, we are those who should mourn. We mourn our sin. We are those who are poor in spirits. Blessed are those who mourn, as the Beatitudes tell us. And so we cast ourselves on the ground as humble disciples of Jesus, we listen to His word, and we await His salvation. Now much more can be said, but it really is quite a simple thing. And as we do that, we find comforts. For that very same Son of Man who comes back with glory that radiates for all the world to see, it will be a glory that brings joy to your heart. Because you will recognize on that day that His glory is a glory that blesses you. When He appears, we will be made like Him. For we will see Him as He is. 1 John 3 It is a glory that radiates for your salvation. A glory that radiates for your good and for your comfort. And so on that day, beloved, you will not mourn any longer. Your mourning will be done. Rather, you will be comforted and you will celebrate, for you have held fast to the word of your master. But recall our reading from 1 Thessalonians 4. Our Savior will not forget those who are, quote, asleep. In other words, those who have died in the faith. Of course, their soul, immediately at their death, Their soul goes to be with Christ immediately. The language of being asleep is their bodies laid to rest in the grave. From the vantage point of those who live on earth, they are asleep with respect to their bodies, not their souls. On that last day, Christ will gather his elect from the four corners, not only the elect that are living, but the elect that are in the grave as well. Their bodies. We'll be raised up, that we're all caught up together with Christ in the air. We meet Him in the air. But it's not a meeting like a rapture thing where you're gone forever. That's how the dispensationalists have co-opted that language of meeting the Lord in the air. It doesn't mean that at all. It does not mean a secret rapture to vanish and to go away. To meet Him in the air is to meet Him as an escort for Him, to then usher Him into creation that belongs to Him. It's the kind of thing you might do at your house. If an honored guest comes to your house, you might walk out to their car to meet them at their car, and then to bring them into your home. That is what we will do with our Savior on that last day. Those who are asleep and those who live until then, we meet the Lord in the air we meet Him to usher Him into His kingdom, which is immediately consummated, the new heavens and the new earth. This is a response of joy. We'll meet our deceased loved ones if you are alive to that end. This is a response of celebration. For those who are dead will receive their bodies back glorified. This is a response of comfort. For our Savior comes with glory for our good, not for our destruction. Our third point, our response. As you bring this to a close, let me address a couple of questions you might have about this. We uh, read here in verse 29, it says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and so forth. Right? Immediately after that tribulation. Now, 70 A.D. happened a long long time ago. Jesus did not return immediately after, some will, will say. And so what are we supposed to do with that? Well, we should recognize here that the type and shadow, the figure, is about the desecration of creation. It's not about the return of Jesus. Okay, There's no type and shadow of Jesus' return. Because that's the fulfillment of all things. How can you have a type and shadow of his glorious return? It doesn't really uh, work like that. The type and shadow is the extension of tribulation, the desecration of the temple, not of the return of Jesus. When we then think about the return of Jesus, it does not come after the type and shadow. It comes after the main event happens. It comes after the age of tribulation. It comes after the entire cosmos is desecrated. Then he comes immediately after. After the real thing. Not after the 70 AD type and shadow. Next. Some might say, I don't think that I will be comforted at Christ's return because so many people will be judged. Now, on one hand, I want to say to you that it is appropriate for us to have compassion right now. A compassion for the lost. And that is what leads us to say that. That it's hard for us to imagine being comforted when so many will be exposed to everlasting judgments. We should, before Christ returns, we should, before that event have compassion on the lost, and seek to spread the Gospel. That is a good reaction. But we should also trust that on that last day, when the time has changed and we see Jesus, and we are then transformed to become perfectly like Him, that it will all then make sense and what we know is good, namely His return, will then feel like it's good. Okay? It might not yet feel so good to you because you're mourning those whom you love, who don't know Jesus, but it will feel good on the last day. You can trust that. You'll recognize what God recognizes, what Christ recognizes. Everything will line up just fine. Your feelings now are appropriate Because Christ has not yet returned. Continue to have compassion. But trust on that last day, when he returns, you will see things as God sees things. You will understand things as Christ understands things. And so you will rejoice and have comfort. Part of the problem here is that we oftentimes don't realize just how bad the spiritual battle is in which we live. We look at our lives and we feel like we live pretty good lives. We don't experience and feel the attacks of the evil one, the onslaught of the world, the danger of our sin. And so because of that, the return of Jesus doesn't feel that great. But if we mourned our sins, if we mourn the temptation that overcomes us so often, then we would begin now to feel like that is a good thing the more you recognize your spiritual battle that we are all in together, the better his return will appear and feel to you. There might be some out here today as well who might still feel worried. Maybe not for others, but for yourself. That day of darkness. That day of violent justice. The glory of Christ that overwhelms all creation, brings creation to a stop, shakes not only the earth, but the heavens as well. I'm scared, Pastor Zach. Beloved, recognize with clarity what Jesus Christ has done. Recognize what happened at the cross. The day of the Lord the day of vengeance and judgment, happened there at the cross. It happened there for you, Christian. Your day of the Lord has already happened. That is why at the cross, there was darkness overwhelming it in middle day. The sun was not shining at noon. Darkness overwhelmed the cross. Why? Why? because Christ was bearing your wrath. If you trust in Jesus, you have no need to be afraid. You have no need to fear because when the darkness comes on the coming day of the Lord, you will say, nope, it's already come for me. Jesus took it. He entered into the darkness that I don't need to. He's going to catch me up to heaven that the darkness will not overwhelm me because I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And so do not fear that day. Rather, be comforted because that is the day of your complete redemption. The things that Jesus has done for you will be poured out upon you with everlasting glory. The things you today just have a foretaste of, you will have the full feast. Do not fear, beloved, that day of deep darkness. Trust in Jesus that he has taken the darkness and the wrath of God for you. And so he will not expose you to the destruction, but rather, having taken it himself, he will bring you nothing but comfort and nothing but joy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.